0: Thank you for listening to this message by pastor chad randall at life story church we are a grassroots church located in the heart of the bellevue community in nashville tennessee our services are streamed live on facebook and youtube every sunday morning at ten thirty a.m and wednesday 7 p.m central time we would love for you to join us now here's pastor chad randall well 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 now that i've got you back in my clutches here We've been having a good time studying through Romans, haven't we? You guys got your Bibles ready? Let me hear some Bible pages flip. We're going to open up to uh, Romans chapter 3. We first want to acknowledge uh, today is Reformation Day. Some people think it's a a day for something else, but for us, it's Reformation Day, right? That's what we remember today, the day that uh, the Lord changed the world, through uh, Martin Luther, the day that uh, we were liberated from another works-based religious system. We don't need any more of those, do we? I think the world's got plenty of those. If you guys didn't get a chance to join us this past Wednesday night, I want to encourage you to go to the YouTube page or you can find it on uh, Facebook as well, but generally it's easier to find on YouTube. Go to the Life Story Church uh, YouTube page and watch this past Wednesday night's message. It's all about the Reformation. It's called The Day That Changed the World. So if you missed that, uh, I know this group. This is a group of people that love the Word of God, love context, love history, love it all. You love to know what you believe and why. Amen? Amen. And there's a lot of good truth in that uh, lesson for you guys. So with that being said, Romans. Romans is the most comprehensive expression of theology in the entire Bible. If you didn't know that already, only a couple chapters in, you're probably figuring it out. Some call it the gospel according to Paul. The grace of God is the theme. The grace of God revealed. God's righteousness, our iniquity, and God's remedy through grace. In a letter in 500 BC, Socrates wrote to Plato. He said this. He said, it may be that the deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how in this study we shall indeed see how. Amen? So today, chapter 3. There is a prevalent uh, heresy that is alive and well in the churches, and I would say most churches, sadly, in America. It's a heresy... That is known as replacement theology. It's also known as reconstruction theology. It's also known as dominionism. It's also known as kingdom now. Essentially what it teaches you is that you know, the Jews had their chance. They had the Messiah of Israel come to them. They did not accept that Messiah and now they're out. Now, the church who has accepted their Messiah takes the place of Israel theologically in the scriptures. So any promise that was formerly made to Israel is now a promise for you. This dangerous idea has led to anti-Semitism world, worldwide. It has led to the Holocaust. It's a dangerous, dangerous idea. You see, God is not a liar. He is not a liar. His promises for Israel are going to come to pass. They will come to pass. And trust me, if you study Revelation at all, you don't want to be Israel anyway. (laughs) I think today's study will go a long way towards putting that replacement theology to bed. I'll just say that. And we'll begin with verse 1. Can we see that? What advantage, then, has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Remember the context of where we were last week. Paul continues his diatribe, okay? Answering, uh, answering questions that he imagines one in Rome might have for him. This question or questions coming in response to the great Paul, uh, point that Paul Just spent the entire first two chapters of Romans setting up. The whole I said this last week. I'll say it again. If you're going to study Romans chapter two, you can't study it without chapter one. If you're going to study chapter one, you can't do it without chapter two. Okay, they're they're one. They were on a scroll together anyway. The chapter thing came around way later. Paul is building a narrative here. He's imagining in the minds of the reader of his letter what they might be thinking. And in doing so, he did this. Can we see this first graphic? He set up this narrative. He sets up a visual of three straw men. In other words, exhibit A, exhibit B, and exhibit C if you're in the courtroom. He explains how the pagans were condemned before God in chapter 1, how moral man was condemned before God in chapter 2, how religious people even are condemned before God. So after all that, Paul says, what advantage then has the Jew? What profit is the circumcision? After all that, we might expect Paul to say, no advantage at all, actually. But what does he say? Can we see verse 2? He says, much in every way. In other words, there is an advantage to being Jewish chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God the casual reader here would say that the Jew had had the advantage because to him were entrusted the scriptures and the prophets right the oracle of God if you're just read it, casually reading that you're going to think oh well yeah because i guess you know god chose them speak through prophets, prophets that were Jewish. They had the Torah, so that must be what Paul is talking about, right? But this is not what Paul is referring to. The word oracles here, logion, in the Greek, refers to divine utterances or promises. Promises, by the way, which some are not yet fulfilled. The Jews were not just custodians of scripture, but the very recipients of God's promises. That was something new in all of history. That was something that was new. To have the revelation of God's will and purpose committed to them was a high honor. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? For what if some did not believe? What's he saying here? Well, Israel proved to be unfaithful with that responsibility. It was a high honor, high responsibility to have been given all of these promises by God as a nation, as a people. And they dropped the ball. They dropped, they dropped the ball. The Messiah came and largely they, they certainly as a nation missed him. So Paul says, for, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, Paul is saying here that men's unfaithfulness, hear me now, come on, listen to, listen to this point. Paul is saying here that, if, that men's unfaithfulness never alters God's faithfulness, never. Men's unfaithfulness never alters God's faithfulness. It never frustrates his purpose. Somebody in here needed to hear that. I don't know who it was. Was it all of us that needed to hear it? I thought so, right? Verse 4, Paul writes, Certainly not, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. The Greek here, for certainly not, the Greek here is saying genoito, which means let it not be so. You can hear the passion. Remember, remember, as Tertius is, is taking down the, the dictation for what Paul is telling him to write, Tertius can barely keep up, and, and uh, scholars can see it in the Greek text, that there's half sentences and the punctuations are off. You can see that he's trying to keep up. Paul's impassioned here as he's writing. Let it not be so, or I love, uh, and as the King James Version accurately says, God forbid, God forbid, If you don't believe the promises that God has given the Jew, then you are calling God a liar. Wow. If we have any replacement theology advocates listening, you may want to reevaluate your position. Buckle up now, because this is about to get good, all right? Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. It's implied here that we did God a big favor by being so rebellious. Is God going to judge us for glorifying him? Because if in our weakness he is shown to be strong, and the weaker that we are, the stronger he appears to be and is proven to be. This logic is absurd, of course. (laughs) It's absurd, of course. But Paul obviously had a reason to imagine, imagine that somebody might be saying or thinking this. Certainly not. Certainly not. For then how will God, verse 6, certainly not for then how will God judge the world? This statement here is affirming to the Jew and to the rabbis in Rome because they knew that the Gentiles would be judged and they would have to be judged. Let's keep reading, verse 7. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie... Or if you want to break that down, my moral falsehood. If the truth of God has increased through my moral falsehood, lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? Remember, he's imagining that somebody might be questioning him in such a way as he writes. Verse 8, And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Their condemnation is just. Here we see in this verse 8 right here, here we see that there were some who were falsely suggesting that this is what Paul was teaching, you see. He was teaching salvation, justification by faith alone, not by the works of the law. And in hearing that gospel, hearing that teaching, some began to... Suggest that Paul was actually saying, Well, go ahead and do evil, because then the, ra- the righteousness of, gri- uh, of Christ will be shown all the more and magnified. Simply because he was saying the law won't save you, and that in our weakness he is strong. Some began to say of Paul, Well, I mean, this guy's saying in your weakness he's strong. So he's teaching just to be as wicked as you want to, because God is then glorified through it. Paul then says their condemnation is just. Essentially, he's saying they are right to condemn such a teaching. It's not really surprising uh, that we see this, though. Not really, is it? Be it Christians, Jews, or pagans, up until this point, religion was essentially a matter of the law. It was a matter of the law, and it still is. Religion, that is. Religion is still simply a matter of the law. You know what religion is? It's man trying to prove himself to God through different laws, activities, whatever it is, and could be any different religion all the way around the world. That's what it is, man trying to get to God. You understand Christianity and what Jesus did is the only world religion where God came down to man. But that's what they understand, the Jews of the day, the pagans of the day, even the Christians, the new Christians of the day, were either formerly pagan or formerly Jews, and they understood that obedience to law is how man could approach God, or God's little g, right? A doctrine of justification, apart from works of the law, undermined their entire religion, and thus they saw it as immoral itself. How could Paul teach that? This is the only way we know how to get to God, and he's, he's cutting that off. This is a thinking, church, that's still very prevalent today. It's still very prevalent today, and not just among pagans of the world today or among Jews today. This is a thinking, a religious thinking that is so deeply seated it may even still be present in the back of some of your minds sitting in this room today. I want you to hear me, church, and hear my heart on this. It is so hard for the legalists to lay down the law. It is so hard. Even if they know know better, even if... Church, if you have been raised in legalism, I'm not going to do a show of hands here, but if you have been raised in legalism and are set free by truth and love, having finally understood the true gospel, it's still a struggle, isn't it? Even then, it is still a struggle. I know it is because we spend a lot of time talking, some of us, don't we? You know who he says you are, and you even believe it. You know the gospel. You know who he says you are now. You You even believe it, but it's hard to feel it sometimes, isn't it? It's easy to forget. It's easy to forget when the enemy brings the ministry of condemnation back to your remembrance, and he's so good at doing that. Somebody I once counseled um, struggled with the teaching of the church that she was raised in. Uh, and her father, or was it grandfather, I can't remember, would always say to her, go and sin no more. Why is your life a mess? You believe in Jesus? Now go and sin no more. It's just that simple, right? As if she could actually not commit another sin in her life. Then she she inevitably would, inevitably, she would feel condemned all over again, and then they'd let her know that she was crucifying Christ all over again. Thanks a lot. Right? Well, you're saved. Go and sin no more. Oh, you did. Well, you just crucified Christ all over again. Let's well, talk about feeling defeated, huh? Talk about taking scriptures out of context, okay? Talk about wrongly inferring meaning onto the text. Imagine being raised with this kind of false gospel. Just for a moment, imagine being raised with this false gospel where you are going to hell literally every time you slip up. Spending a life trying to measure up, believing that if you don't, you're damned. And knowing in your heart truly that you don't measure up. How much harder would it be then to separate from this psyche? And that's what it is. It is a psyche. How much harder would it be to separate from that psyche? If you're a leader or a teacher of it, it's all the more difficult. It's not hard to imagine that they would view Paul's Gospel of Justification, apart from works as an offensive heresy, and they did. You know, Amber and I some of you guys, a lot of you guys know our story, but we planted the first church we ever planted 10 years ago, probably longer now was in Northeast Arkansas, and that region had just a deep spiritual oppression hanging over it of legalism. Legalism, when I say legalism, if you're not familiar, it's simply this. You believe in Jesus, great, you have faith, you're saved. But now you got to do works to keep it or you could lose it. Right? Faith plus works equals salvation, whereas Paul, over and over again, and you'll see it plainly by the time we're done here today, says faith plus nothing. Sorry you don't get any credit in this uh, deal, all right? Well, there, was this, there was a deep-seated spiritual oppression of legalism over the area, you know, and the ministers of condemnation did not like us. They did not like us very much. Word would get back to us uh, all the time what they were saying about us. Talk about trial by fire for your first church as a pastor. We'd hear things come back to us. They even allow coffee in the sanctuary. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And that just broke the key. That was the straw coffee in the sanctuary. <laughs> if you know the truth, but are still struggling with that lie of condemnation, there is freedom for you here today. Amen. If you have been abused by these other gospels, and that's what they are, these are Paul calls them another gospel. It's a different Jesus. It's if they're teaching you, come on to Jesus and believe in the cross, but then you have to do X, Y, and Z to get, get saved or stay saved, that is that's a different Jesus, right? I mean, I'm not the only Chad on the planet, right? What's in it, what's in a name, right? Well not the person. The Book of Wisdom is an ancient text we visited a couple weeks ago. It's an extra canonical uh, text. Didn't end up in our Bible because they couldn't figure out who wrote it. Some said Solomon, some thought an Alexandrian Jew. It was written prior to the time of Jesus, though. It says this in Wisdom, chapter 15, verse 2 and 3. For even if we sin, even if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. But we will not sin because we know we are accounted thine. We're yours. For to know thee is complete righteousness. How do you get complete righteousness? To know thee. And to know thy power is the root of immortality. This is some righteous robe of Christ mentality here. This is a pre time of Christ text that foreshadows what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 20, when he says, It is not I who sin, but the sin dwelling within me. But we'll get to that probably by like May or something at this rate. <laughs> Verse 9, Paul says this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And he thoroughly did it, didn't he? All are guilty. Can we see this graphic, this tile? All are guilty. All are guilty. The pagan man has the creation that convicts him. He has no excuse, Paul said. The moral man also guilty. He doesn't even live up to his own conscience, Paul says. And that is inadequate. The religious man, the greatest historical illustration of commitment and sincerity found in the world... The Jew still doesn't make it. The Jews, with all their sincerity sincerely and sincerity and commitment, cannot save themselves. All are guilty, verse 10. as it is written. As it is written. Now Paul is about to jump into uh, verse 11 through. 18 here, he's, he's going to present a catena of Old Testament quotations where the general sinfulness of man is summed up in Old Testament quotes. So we're going we're gonna to rock through them pretty quickly. We're essentially highlighting the reality that the law brings out the sin of men and women, but it does nothing to cure it. The law brings the sin out. It exposes the sin, but it does nothing to cure it. It's like Western medicine, right? Only treating the symptom, never, the curing, never curing the root. Might take the sermon in a different direction. <laughs> Both Jew and Greek have, come, have to come to the same conclusion and declare themselves morally bankrupt, this is Paul's case here, okay? Let me say it again. Both the Jew and the Greek, we've got some Jews in here. We've got everybody else's Greek, all right? Both Jew and Greek have to come to the same conclusion and declare themselves morally bankrupt. Have you declared yourself morally bankrupt yet? Nobody wants to do that, right? I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself morally bankrupt, right? I mean... <laughs> I make some bad decisions here and there, but I generally mean to do well, right? I wouldn't call myself bankrupt. No, no. (laughs) You see, if you break one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Have you admitted to yourself before your living God that you are morally bankrupt? You see, you have to. Your only hope is the mercy of God, and you will never, hear me now, church, you, trust me, you will never fully rely on that mercy until you admit it. Hmm. Let's read verse 10 through uh, 18. Like I said, we'll move pretty quickly here. There is none righteous, not one. Paul's quoting from Psalm 114, verse 1 here. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. He's talking about the willfully ignorant here. Remember as he spoke on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he told them, you know, there was a time where God overlooked sin in his patience, but that time is over now. That time is over now. Now he calls all to repent and repent doesn't mean to be sorry. Metanoia in the Greek, it means to change your mind. You didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Now you do. Verse 12. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does, who does good. No, not one. They have deliberately turned their backs on the truth here, church. You know, mankind does not evolve up as these universalistic, Gnostic-in-origin teachings of the day. We call them new age, but they're not nothing new about them. Man does not evolve into a higher plane of consciousness. No, man devolves. That's what happens to us. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb, referencing Psalm 5, 9. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lisp. The asp is an Egyptian cobra. Uh, Paul is essentially saying here, the most painful sin is gossip. It truly is, especially for leaders. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10:7. Remember, the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. What, is, what, is, what comes out of the mouth? What the heart is full of, right? Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, Isaiah 59, 7, and 8. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. There is no real fulfillment in this life, church, apart from glorifying God. I think it was a famous quote more money, more problems, right? That puff daddy. P. Diddy, it's not going to fill that hole in your heart. There is no fulfillment in this life apart from glorifying God, church. Verse 17, and the way of of peace they have not known. There is no peace when separated from God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So this is, Paul just lays it out. In case he missed anybody in the first two chapters, he wants to make sure. this is not just the case against the, the uh, debauched pagan. This is not just the case now against the moral pagan. This is not the case against the moral Jew. This is Paul's case against the entire human race. Can we see that? Man's character, which is hope hopelessly flawed. Man's conduct, his speech. His actions, the cause, all of the above. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, the law was given so men would come to an end of themselves. Moses came down the mountain When he had the Ten Commandments, there's ten laws God gave them to live by, right? Ten laws. He came down, saw they'd built a golden calf, smashed the Ten Commandments, the first guy ever to break all ten at one time. (laughs) Goes back up the mountain, comes back down with another set, right? He talks to the people. As the law came down, 3,000 people still in their rebellion died that day. Contrast that with when the Holy Spirit came down. 3,000 were saved that day, on the same day, Pentecost, by the way. That's not what we're talking about, though. When Moses came with the law, how did their people respond? The people that were faithful and on his side, they said, All this we can do and more. They still didn't get it. No, you can't. You can't even get past the first one. You're too selfish. So, what did God do? More? All right, another 603. <laughs> 613 laws, Mosaic and Levitical. Do you, did they get the point yet? No. They still missed him when he came. All the world may become guilty before God, thanks to the law. Verse 20. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law, is the knowledge of sin. That was supposed to be the point the whole time. To get you into a place and a position in your heart where you would turn to him and you would cry for mercy. And say, Lord, I need a savior. I need you to save me. This, I can't do this. But now, a new way to acceptance With God has been opened, and it is completely different from the way of legal obedience, Paul tells us here. Verse 21, let's keep reading. But now, but now, the righteousness of God, what's that say? Apart from the law, say it with me out loud, what's that say? Apart from the law. Now, he's referring to the law of Moses here, right? However, in plenty of churches across the country today, there are new laws that they have just made up. I'd rather it be a Hebrew roots thing, at least. So that's got some doctrinal foundation. There's, but there's laws in, in churches across the country that are being put on to people, much like the story of the woman I told earlier. This should shred that, <laughs> any idea that you need to stay saved with your good works or bad behavior, apart from the law, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It's wide open now. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's not new and it's not out of the blue. It was witnessed by the prophets. It was coming. It was foretold. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to to all and on all who believe. Apart from the law the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who what? Is it who believe and follow the law? No, it's on all who believe. For there is no difference. There is no difference, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The image in which man was created was believed uh, to involve a, a shared divine glory with God. When man was created in the Garden of Eden, this is the mindset of the people at the time, by the way, when he, when he says the glory of God and on, okay? In the creation, rabbis and teachers at the time, generally the, the practicing Jew believed that when Adam was in the garden, garden there was a, glory, a part of God's glory that was upon him. But when he fell... That fell off of him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So imagine that context when you read that verse. You can, for backup, if you want to take a note, if you're a note taker, Isaiah forty-three seven. You'll find that discussed. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter eleven verse seven, when Paul says, "The hope of sharing the glory of God awaits believers in the coming age." In other words. In other words, in the twinkling of an eye, <clears throat> we will be changed, and we will be like him. That's what's in view here. Verse 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, this might just be the perfect time to close and open the altars up. I mean, come on <laughs> People, you are free. You are free. The famous Roman poet, uh, poet Horace, he once laid down uh, some guidelines for playwrights of his day. He said, you know, uh, these playwrights, they would too red- readily... Uh, cling to a device that might solve some tangles. Uh, Like if they were writing a a play and in their writing of the plot it kind of got mixed up and they didn't know how to figure it out, they would just write in a god to come fix everything. And it would straighten out their plot line. (sighs) Horace famously said this. He said, do not bring a god onto the stage, he says, unless the problem is one that deserves a god to solve it. Martin Luther Uh, was familiar with these words, and he took up these words and applied them to the forgiveness of sins. Here in this quote, he said, is a problem which does need God to solve it. Can we read that? True. For sinful man cannot solve it, though he desperately needs a solution to it. It is his problem. It is he who needs to be forgiven, and what Paul tells us here is that the problem has been worthily solved by the grace of God who has presented Christ as the solution, the means of forgiveness, the guarantor of our acceptance. All that is required of sinful men and women is that they should embrace by faith what God's grace has provided. Amen? Come on now, church, are you with me? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what redemption means? I'll give it to you real fast. We're running out of time. Redemption is this in the Greek, apolytrosis. It means ransom. You have been ransomed. The buying of a slave out of bondage, not just out of bondage to come work for you now. You're not now his slave. No, you buy the slave to free the slave. John Bunyan uh, was a famous writer in the 1600s. If you're not familiar with him, you may be familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress. That was his most popular work. He wrote a book called a Grace Abounding in 1666. I've got a quote for you from it. Let's read it. As I was walking up and down in the house As a man in a most woeful state, that word of God took hold of my heart. Ye are justified freely by his grace through the redemption or ransom that is in Christ Jesus. But oh, what a turn it took, what a turn it made upon me, now was I as one awakened out of some troublesome sleep and dream, and listening to this heavenly sentence, I was as if I was as if I had heard it, thus expounded to me. Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sin and infirmities I cannot save thy soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not Thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. Whew, got chill bumps. Bunyan was imprisoned for 12 years for nonconformist religious activity. Verse 25. Whom God set forth as the propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Mm. You know what? Can I invite Leith forward? I just feel like I'm just going to, I need to stop right here. I'm not going to turn the page on this. We're going to pick up right here next week. Thank you, brother. (sighs) Can I see that uh, quote back up on the screen? I just, I feel like somebody needs to, somebody needs to let this just take a moment and let it wash over your heart. Somebody needs to just take that filter. And we've all got a filter in our, in, our, in our heart, in our mind. Our childhood, the things our parents taught us, our, the, the things that we've learned from our realm of influence, the things we heard in church even. Some of us, you know, I just have this, <laughs> this might sound ridiculous, but, you know, when you go to um, get your oil changed, and they pull out the air filter in your car and they take the air, what do you call that, compressor, and they just blow all the filth off of it. I just feel like some some of you guys need to have that filter just blown clean and get the dirt out, get the filth out. Because you are saved by his grace, his work, if you were saved by what he did, how is what you do or don't do even a part of the equation? Here's the news. It isn't. It isn't. Faith isn't even a thing you do. Repenting isn't even a thing you do. It's a mental faculty. You didn't believe. Now you do. You didn't trust him, now you trust him. I just think there's somebody in here that's been trusting and hoping that one day when they stand before God that they would have done good enough. You can't. None are righteous. Didn't you hear, Paul? None are righteous. (laughs) All that is required of sinful men and women, do you see this? Is that they should embrace by faith what God's grace has provided. (sighs) With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here this morning, And you have struggled. Maybe you have, maybe you were raised in that legalism or maybe you weren't and it's just your conscience that brings to bear the weight of guilt upon you. And you just feel unworthy. I'm here to tell you that you are. (laughs) And you can't fix that. Do you get it? But he fixed that. (laughs) That was the situation. Don't bring a God into the scenario unless it's worthy of a God to fix it. Oh, we needed him. And so he came. And he wrote himself into history in advanced church. As I awoke out of some troublesome sleep and dream, Listening to this heavenly sentence, I was as it, as I heard it, it expounded to me. You think that because of thy sin and infirmities, I cannot save your soul? Oh, he can, church. I want you to lay down the burden, I want you to lay down the guilt. If you think you're not worthy of God saving you, if you think that, that you've gone too far, if you think that, he, he's, as we talked about last week, somehow he's punishing you for your failure to measure up, I, I want you to drop that off of you. I want you to walk out of this church today free men and women. It is by faith that you are saved and set free. And guess what Paul tells us in Ephesians 1? That when you do that, when you put your faith, when you change your mind and you put your trust in him, that your heart is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and your heart changes. Your desires change. What you didn't want to do before, you now want to do. What you wanted to do before, now you don't. As your heart is overwhelmed with gratitude, as one awakened from a dream. So let's do this. If you're in here and you're laying that down, I just let's, something happens to us spiritually when we do something physical. We're connected. We're not just physical beings but spiritual beings. If you're in here and you're laying that down, raise your hand. Just raise your hand and drop it at the feet of Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I want you to drop that burden and I want you to walk out of here free, men and women. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, that we will go into his grace, walk into the deeds that he has prepared for us to walk into, the good, see the good works, the good deeds. He's even prepared those for us. He set a table before you. That is love, church. Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness. We ask that you'd cleanse our minds, cleanse our consciences, Father, of law-based, works-based religion, God. Get it out of our subconscious, Lord. Help us to see ourselves as you see us, God. That when you look upon us, you see not our righteousness, but the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. Let us get that deep down in our hearts and let that be our psyche, God. Not one of failed religion and worthlessness, God. Let us walk into the daylight boldly as your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, liberated and full of your joy. If somebody's here and they want to give their heart, they want to put their faith and trust in him, we want to pray with you right now. If you've never done that, or maybe you've been living religion and you didn't even realize it, and you want to lay that religion down and say a, say a confession of faith to him in whom you now put your trust Let's pray out loud as a church body. Let's pray. Say this: Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. Come into my heart. Make me new. Clean out my filter, God. Holy Spirit, have your way in my heart and my mind. Make me new. Lead me, God into the works that you have for me now. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you, keep you, may he make his face to shine upon you, pour his grace favor out on you in abundance. May you prosper in all you do. Go in grace, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Enjoy this beautiful day, guys. We love you. Thank you.